and welcome to Polly Pages. Books. <laughs> the podcast where genuine Polly people read the texts that have shaped our community and culture. I'm Claire. And I'm Sebastian. And on this season, we're reading The Ethical Slut, third edition, by Janet Hardy and Dossie Easton. I am in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Where are you, Claire? I'm in a sleepy English town in the UK. And on this week's episode, we are reading chapter 16, Embracing Conflict. What did you think of this chapter? I... Were you conflicted over it? Oh. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> that was a joke. Um, I think it was a really good and important chapter, and it was also really difficult I think definitely for me, I'm sure for most people, like dealing with conflict and thinking about conflicts and how to handle them is not the easiest thing, which makes us all the more important, but also means it's sort of, it's definitely a difficult one to read through and think about and introspect on and then talk through. Yeah, I think you're right. This is, this is a hard thing to, to even just to talk about. Um, and I think they do quite a good job in the chapter on the whole. Bit of background about this chapter. It has been in basically all three of the editions. It's, I would say, like one of the backbone chapters almost. Like it hasn't been added in for this edition. It's, it's always been in this book. And obviously conflict is um, like quite normal in every relationship. Um, it's very normal to have, you know, situations where your boundaries like bump up against somebody else's or little arguments are happening. Um, and this isn't just in a romantic relationship, but in basically every aspect of our lives. So whether it's like with family members, um, co-workers, your friends, but in this chapter, because of the nature of this book, they only talk about conflict really with sort of a lens of intimate relationships. Yeah. They definitely focus on how to address conflicts in different relationships, but they do make some points and references to the fact that a lot of us learn how to deal with conflicts in non-romantic relationships. So that's usually as a child at home with our parents and siblings and family. And a lot of the ways that we learn to deal with conflict come from you know, either observing conflicts at an early age before we really understand what's going on or the initial conflicts that we have um, and how those conflicts and the dynamics of those can end up impacting us later on and how we deal with conflicts. But you're right that, that then they give us the skills to address that positive or negative things we've learned or different things in our romantic relationships. So I think before we kind of go into this, that there isn't a caveat in this chapter, but I think it's important to note that um, the authors and us in this episode, we're going to come at this with an assumption of sort of good faith within the relationship. So, Obviously, as I said, conflict is like a normal part of every relationship, but we're assuming that that relationship is not toxic, is not abusive or harmful for either of the people in it. If you are listening to this and you think that is something that maybe you would need help on identifying um, or if you're interested in knowing more about toxic relationships because they don't talk about them here, um, I will signpost a couple of episodes by Multi-Amory um, in which they talk about sort of warning signs and toxic um, practices or habits that might be coming out in these conflicts. But obviously, if they, they, didn't, they didn't put that caveat in. This is not the first chapter that we've seen that where they just don't caveat this stuff. But 
whatever. That's why we're here, right? To add those caveats. I think it was, it definitely wasn't explicitly said, I think just in the tone of how they did it. And they talk, they mention abusive relationships and, and things like that a couple of times as they're explaining other stuff. And I think they definitely weren't explicit about it, but it seemed implicit to me that this was all for, this is all assuming a positive and healthy well-intentioned relationships that are not abusive or i think for this for this chapter it's just it would have been nice to see that made even more but especially because both of the authors like have at least i think dossi is explicitly a, a therapist right that's her yeah. that's her line of work or a marriage counselor or something okay so let's just dive right in i'm going to read straight from the book nothing builds intimacy like shared vulnerability and I thought that was a really solid opening line. Um, I underlined it. And I think that I've never really thought about the ultimate act of intimacy to be having, um, you know, an argument or sharing, like, things that sometimes don't feel great. <laughs> but actually, that's, I think, the tone for this whole chapter is, like, when you're going out this in good faith, then the fight is a good thing. Um, so they start with that a little bit and then they ask the question what's in it for you um, and in that they say bas I think basically they're, they're trying to say like this is going to be difficult to start talking about the scripts with which you deal with conflict they're going to be like really hard conversations to have and quite a lot of work needs to go into making sure that we own ourselves and, and what we're feeling enough to be able to make those conflicts productive and not destructive and empowering and not disempowering. Um, so I think that they, they make kind of a weak argument here, but I am behind it anyway. <laughs> they say that the payoff is your own freedom. You have to learn to give freedom to our partners if we're going to get it ourselves. Studying the scripts you had to live by in your childhood would explain a lot about how you react to anger and conflict today. What did you think about that statement? Um, there's sort of two parts. I I appreciate this section for sort of starting off by saying, like, conflict is good. There's reasons why we're scared of it and how to address it. Um, and one of the reasons that they really point out here that really resonates with me is studying the scripts you had to live by in your childhood will explain a lot about how you react to anger and conflict today which is definitely something as I've gotten older and been in more relationships, I've really had to examine about myself of how I personally learned how to deal with conflicts and things as a child and young adult and how that's impacted me um, and really changed my mentality from being really opposed to any type of conflict fundamentally to realizing actually conflict is really important. You're not always going to agree with somebody, even if you love them, care about them. You won't always agree. You may be upset with them. You may be unhappy with something that they did. Conflict's going to happen, and it's really about being able to change your script and being able to use that and address those feelings productively and conflict productively. And I think that's what they're getting at here. So I really felt a lot about this section. And I think that this is also, they don't say this here, but uh, it seems to me quite commonsensical that if you're polyamorous and non-monogamous, that the instances in which you're going to come across conflict are going to be more because you have more relationships with stronger emotions maybe at play 
and also less social support. I mean, it, we have our cultural scripts about how to deal with one-on-one -on -one conflict, but like we don't really have a lot of support available out there or like we, we keep using this term scripts and I think we'll dive into that in a second, but ways to ways that we know how to manage it don't come up unless we have a chance to practice managing it. That's how you create the things that work best for you and your your partner or your partners. And when you are in a polyamorous situation, it just seems normal to me that you have sort of you've had less practice in this because we live in a mononormative society where everything's sort of geared towards didactic, you know, conflict, <laughs> didactic relationships, didactic building of those support structures. Um, so I think that. When they ask the question, what's in it for you? It's kind of like, well, you don't really have a choice. <laughs> it was an odd wording for them to use, I think. Like, even if you're in a conflict and you do nothing, you're still you're still having to, like, engage with it. If you're going to have to engage with it, you can't just stonewall the person and, like, not have the discussion or, like, just never hang out with somebody because of that one argument one time. You can't constantly avoid it. So you're going to have to, to like talk about the conflicts. You're going to have to, to engage with it. So the question isn't like, what's in it for you? It's like, well, you're already doing it, but you probably can do it better. We can probably be better at fighting with our loved mm -hmm. ones. Yeah. I mean, and the title of, of the chapter, right, is Embracing Conflict. It's not conflict. So It used to be. Maybe we can read. It used to be. So, I, don't, I can't remember. So what's in it? I think that sounds right. I think that's what you said. But I think that if we if we think about what's in it for you of embracing conflict, I think even that subtle word change, it's like like you said, if if we're going conflict's gonna happen regardless, if we can embrace it and try to be proactive, then it can lead to growth and lead to change and lead to better relationships. And lead to that shared intimacy that they talk about. And shared intimacy, which is very true. There's um I'll link this in the in the show notes. Um, have you heard of Brene Brown? She's written a bunch of relationship books and she's done some specials on Netflix, which is not usually what I watch on Netflix, but I watched a 30 minute one with her talking about shared vulnerability and intimacy and conflict. And it, it really ties into this and it really stuck with me when she talked about that. So I'll link that. I think it's just a very motivational thing to read. And she, a lot of people recommend her writing and her resources. So the next section is fighting fair. Um, and they do say here that um, fights, when when they're talking about fights, they're they're not talking about a physical fight. I think it just they like the alliteration probably. In a good clean fight, there is respect for safety and mutuality, so that the people involved get to fully express their feelings and come out the other end stronger and closer than before. The concept of fair fighting was first expounded by Dr. George Arbach in his wonderful book, The Intimate enemy how to fight fair in love and marriage which they put in their further reading they do say that it's very out of date because it's from the 60s but the communication and detailed descriptions of constructive ways to share your anger are kind of immutable they're, they're still relevant today um i did like this section here where they they talk about there has to be a way to communicate anger in long-term relationships and there also has to be a way to struggle with disagreements there are two types of fights, right? Is that what they're saying here? So there has to be a way to communicate anger. That's the first type of fight. 
I'm upset at this that, that's happened. I'm angry. I have feelings right now. Maybe I just need to vent them. Maybe I will come on to ways in which this type plays out. But there's one set of sort of motivated by anger and there's another which is doing a disagreement. Doing a disagreement. It kind of. I mean, I don't know that those are, I mean, yeah. I don't know. I don't know how differentiated they are. I think it's, that's definitely what they say here. Um, there has to be a way to the anger and disagreements, but I don't know how different those are. I mean, the difference between anger is usually tied to some sort of disagreement or upset. I don't know. Well, like for example, you could disagree about like, well, when it says here, like struggles with disagreements, I, 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 for example, think about, um, the discussions that might two people might have over boundaries. When when, a, when one of your boundaries bumps up against another boundary, that's A, a way that you discover a boundary, and B, it might be a time to reevaluate the relationship. And obviously, at no point should you be in a relationship that asks you to violate your your boundaries, forces you to violate those boundaries. But then there would be, then be a point of conflict, right? There would be like a disagreement about something that is informed by that bumping up against your lover's boundary. So, for example, it might be easier to talk about examples. I have a boundary, let's say, that's like, I won't let people go through my phone. And then one day, I find you going through my phone. And yeah, I'm angry about it, and I want to vent that anger. But there also needs to be a discussion about that boundary, so I can inform you. I'm, I'm not okay with you going through my phone. Here's how, this, this is why, this is, this is the boundary that I'm setting. And then there can be a discussion about that so you understand that like a disagreement about something that is that a good example yeah i think i think that's a good example and we, we've done we've done something about boundaries before but it was a difficult challenge, it was i think maybe now that we, you've talked a little bit and i've thought about it those two types are an important distinction because a conflict like a, a something about disagreements is sort of mutual where both people are coming at something differently as you're saying with boundaries your boundaries are different whereas if you're angry about something it's more of a one-sided it's one person has a particular issue and then you may still disagree about it but I, like somebody having feelings of anger about a certain situation you still need to have ways to deal with that productively and discuss that with the person and then they can share their side does that seem like a way to differentiate those two maybe yeah i mean i don't think about anger as being something that you ever need to really share like and that's that's my emotion like as with all of the emotions they're mine and if i'm angry um and i actually have done this to you even i'll be like i need to vent like can you can you just let me vent right now like it doesn't actually require you to be there i could vent to my dog and i have I think a lot of sources of conflict might just be when somebody is like overwhelmed with their own emotion and needs to make it someone else's problem. And that person is their partner, friend, mom, like whoever you're having this conflict with. And I think it's important to differentiate between those two things, because if you're just venting at someone because you're really angry and hurt for whatever reason, that's never going to be super productive. You need to like calm that down and actually like if you want it to be productive, we're talking about like a changing of environmental behavior or whatever, then that has to come from a place without heated emotions, which I think is what they get on to later. But I don't think, I mean, I don't think, I think venting is important too. And we've talked about venting before, 
I don't think venting necessarily falls into this category of conflict and fighting. Right, venting is a very specific like. There's, we've talked about like a like an actual vent should just be like, I want to just will you listen to me while I vent about this, and there doesn't need to be any input. Whereas when I'm thinking about fighting or being angry, that would be something like if there was an established boundary or agreement in a relationship and one person broke it and then wanting to express your anger and have a discussion about that. I, I, I disagree that that's, that that's how they, how they are thinking about it. I mean, they say venting anger will include finding a safe and constructive way to experience and release some of it. It's not about like someone, someone else doesn't actually literally need to be there for that. Right, it's a conflict that that you have in kind of internally, if you like, but it often spills over onto the ones that we love because we don't have sufficient skills to allow ourselves to safely experience it and release anger. I mean, anger is a really useful emotion, like just as an emotion goes, like it's it's there for a very good reason in our brains, right? But we don't always have the skills, especially when we are heated, to actually like become particularly thoughtful so i think that's why they're separating it it's like you have these like vents where you need to get rid of anger because it's like basically overloading your system and then you have a different type of argument where it's like we are having this disagreement and they have i've highlighted it at the bottom of this section they say if something basically comes up three times it's probably bugging you and you should be raising it which i liked that rule like it's a small thing that like constantly is annoying me or it's, or it's a big thing that's come up a couple of times and we don't seem to have been able to actually like di- like discuss this. But that's that seems very different to me from like a heated anger-filled vent. Should we move on? I just wanted to say one other thing in here when they're talking about fighting fair um, because we sort of skipped over it. But they talk about something else here that I really like and we're going to talk about it, I think, further on as well. But if you're going, one of the things in order to fight fair and to have whatever these discussions and conflicts are, is maybe to make agreements about how you're going to address this. So we're going to talk about it more, but this is where they first bring it up. You know, how are you going to do that? Is it going to not be, if you have kids, is it not in front of the kids? Or when you're driving or when you've, you're intoxicated? Or So it's starting to ask us to think about, you know, if we're going to fight fair and we want to do this productively, what are the limitations we put around that? And what are the rules and agreements we make around conflict to in, to help ensure that it is constructive and uh, fair? Uh, and we're going to talk more about that later, but I, this is where they started talking about it. So I wanted to put that in everybody's mind as we go forward. Which brings us into the next section, which is about win-win solutions. Everyone has to win. One person loses and one person wins, the problem is not resolved. I mean, it seems a little bit simplified, but I do feel like in a healthy relationship, you're having conflict because you're trying to resolve a difference or a, a misunderstanding or something that has upset one person or something like that. And if you start to look at it as winning and losing, that doesn't seem healthy to me. That, that you know, that turns it into a fight, and that doesn't you know, you're trying to win, and then you're that puts you into the situation of doing whatever you need to win so that you feel like you've done right. Right? One person is good and one person is bad. One person is right, one person is wrong. Whereas in a I like that they um they put in here like the emotional profile that, that would actually if you were to have a win-lose situation, the emotional profile would be like 
one person would be feeling overpowered and outgunned or shouted down. That person would feel resentful. The other person would feel, you know, like his adrenaline high of like beating someone else, which is quite a competitive weird thing to want to have in any kind of space with your into a partner. So I like that they they put their these emotional profiles in here because the win win solution. You're right; it's pretty simplified. This is definitely not how fights work. So to make a fight fair, they then this is when they start talking about agrees and limits. Um, agreeing limits the rules and respecting everyone's right to express their feelings and opinions, including our own. Um, they said that it's usually helpful to schedule a time to fight and make agreements to do so. And I thought that that was actually like quite a, quite a couples therapy way of saying, of of thinking about it, right? Like, like it, it which is not surprising because again, that that's the background of the authors, but. We know we know couples that that have that have been in therapy, and actually, it's quite helpful to be like, okay, we are going to talk about that in therapy. You just you can just put it to one side, and you can get on with your day. You know, you can continue having your picnic or your date or your, you know, laundry or whatever because you have sort of side uh, like put a pin in it is the is the phrase that I use. Can we put a pin in this for later when I might have the energy or the time or the space to actually you know, give this my proper attention. Well, I mean, it's even something that we've done. So as most of you listening to this know, we are long distance quite a lot of the time, which means depending on our schedules, it gives us very fluctuating amounts of time to talk. Um, and so we have before been like, we need to talk about this. Let's talk about this on this day, right? Okay, like we're going to talk later in the week and we'll address this issue, but today we're just going to just table it. Waylay, like waylay the other one and be like we're having this argument right now <laughs> because in a sense we kind of have it a bit easier because our fights are already going to be like done on an agreed upon time because it's the time that we both agree to pick up the phone and i will say the other benefit other benefit of that that they talk about here is that when you do schedule those things in advance like say you're having a disagreement and you say okay we're going to talk about that on this day it gives you one the ability to sort of put it out of mind for that time and then to prepare yourself for that. Because another thing that I think people get into is you get upset, the, the adrenaline kicks in, especially if it's a like a, a triggered response or some other issue or whatever's going on. You're upset, you're heightened emotions. And that's hardly ever, probably never the best time to have a significant discussion with someone that you care about. And it almost all about something that you care about, right? Without that just, in my experience, just leads to like, bad discussions and hurt feelings and not being able to organize yourself or express yourself or represent yourself or approach the other person in a respectful way, in a productive way. Yeah. It's not fair on the person you're having the argument with, but it's also not fair on yourself to try and do that when you're in a, like a as you said, heightened emotional state. And you've, you've done this. You've, you've like, you're quite good at preparing your, your thoughts when we have to have a, potentially kind of difficult discussion I've noticed yeah because I have a really hard time in the moment trying to organize my thoughts especially when I'm upset about something or feeling that I have upset so like if I feel like it's you know it's something where I might have done something that's caused somebody to be upset yeah whereas I I process my thoughts like very quickly and especially if I'm adrenalized it's like I mean that's why I do my job that's literally informed many aspects of my life so in the beginning I was like why do you need to like make notes I don't understand 
but now I'm like, oh, you made notes. You care about this. <laughs> so let's let's talk about triggering. So we've spoke about triggering before, but why don't you tell us what it is? What does it mean to be triggered? What is a trigger? So I don't have the technical term. I'm not going to read from there, but a, a triggered response, and I think it's a word that people are using more and more and in different contexts nowadays, but a triggered response is a an emotional and physiological response to a certain situation or action um, that's sort of inbuilt or almost pre-programmed into your brain because of prior actions. So a lot of times this comes up in if you are a victim of trauma or abuse, especially earlier in life, certain things... Which is one of the examples. That's the example that, that Dossie uses in this chapter as well. It's, it's conditioned within her based on trauma from the past experience. Trauma experienced in a past relationship. And one interesting thing to point out, so, so Dossie talks about an example, um, but you don't always... It's so conditioned in you sometimes, so ingrained into your sort of mental processes and almost flight or flight responses and like protective self-protection that you may respond and feel a trigger response without actually having had time to process what has caused you to feel that way. Something may happen. And before you even had a chance to mentally process your body, like will flip a switch and it releases adrenaline and sugar in the same way that you would, if you were being like attacked by a predator, because it's a defense response to protect yourself from a perceived threat. And I mean, I will say there is a bit of shaky brain science in this section a little bit, but I think they kind of, I, th I think that they're, they're basically trying to like give the layman's definition of what this is, really drive home that it's physiological. And, and I will say that it, I kind of just want to say that it's not wrong, like it's not bad if you get triggered. It's, it's obviously it doesn't feel great, but um, it's, it's okay to like I don't want anyone to feel an amount of shame or something or to feel like okay why am I getting why am I having these reactions why are they so intense like why have I just started crying or why have I just decided I need to leave this room right now like when this happens like that it's not necessarily like oh there must be like some deep memory that you've forgotten about like your past like it doesn't matter just get the fuck out of the room take care of yourself the way that you need to um, and there's no space in that for shame because, like, well, this happened recently with me, right? Like, I was triggered and I phoned you and you're like, you, you, why are you apologizing? Like, why are you apologizing? But I don't – I think it's important to remember that, like, this is not – you haven't done something wrong, right? We want to assume – again, we're assuming this positive intent and everything throughout. So assuming that you weren't trying to trigger somebody, and I hope that nobody does that. You're having a conversation. For whatever reason, something you said or did, did that. Like, remember that – this is something that's so ingrained like of course you know don't beat yourself up too much like be supportive do what you can to help the person or give them the space that they need um, but recognize that you you're not at fault i don't know how to like explain that better but i think it's important to remember that it's a no I, if, if i may it can be like so for example it could literally be like um you you're in you're in an argument you're both kind of like, oh, you know, there's already a lot of adrenaline kicking around, which is already going to predispose the person that is going to be triggered to be triggered. It might literally just be, oh, you're standing in this corner of the room and you're standing between 
like between you and the door is is the person you're having a conflict with. It could be something that is that simple. That person could be standing there doing literally nothing with their arms, not waving anything, definitely nothing aggressive. And that could be enough to just, you know, trigger this this person because of something that's happened previously or whatever. And it doesn't really matter. There's no one to blame in that situation. So what I also wanted to say about that sort of if we understand that there is nobody to blame, which is a much better way of saying what I wanted to say, is is that this is another place where having those predetermined rules and discussion comes into place. So some examples they talk about here is like, if somebody is triggered, how do you respond to that? Or do you have like separate rooms to go to? Do you have certain things that you're going to do? Do you want to be together? Can you, something else they talk about in here is calling a timeout, which always reminds me when they talked about calling a timeout, have you ever watched um, How I Met Your Mother? Oh yeah, Lily and Marshall. Lillian Marshall had a rule all throughout that, that like no matter what they were arguing about, what was going on, they could call a timeout. And no matter what was going on, like it was just like, stop, like we love each other. And whatever we're arguing about it, we're going to put a pause because we just need to like stop right now. And it was really sweet when it happened in the show. So some of the ones that they mention here are uh, literally leaving the room. Um, they say for 15 minutes, right? to go and take care of yourself for 15 minutes. Some other ones I've heard are things like going for a run, um, you know, reading a book, although I could never personally do that if I was, like, super angry. Um, listening to music, watching television, like, anything that's quite soothing that's going to, like, take away the adrenaline. Don't go and play, like, COD or something. Um, and usually, like... The, they keep saying here, like, there's this, there's a physical space to that, but there's also, like, a time space to that. You're giving yourself time to to calm everything. And that's everything I have to say yeah. about that. Well, and I do think, just to your point about, I like, not calling a timeout on somebody else, they do say pretty, when they describe the call, they're, they say really specifically, like, when you feel you're most really uncomfortable or too overwhelmed or triggered, you should call a timeout for yourself to say, like, I, I just can't do this right now. Like, this is, I can't have this conversation productively right now. I need a timeout. So I actually, I used to have one of these with my father. Yeah, I remember very, very, like, quite young. And we made, we agreed that the word oranges would be so weird to just yell at somebody that that would be the word because, you know, when you're in the middle of an argument you can all of a sudden laugh it's very quick diffusing but it never never works but then I was also eight so you know I'm sure if I tried that now I would be able to like you know use this this safe word if you like like more effectively right. it kind of reminds me of a safe word I mean so for an example for me like I sometimes very much need space especially when I'm home with my whole family who I love very dearly can be overwhelming. I mean, if they do, they know they know this about me. So the, the point about this is they know this about me because we've been together for so long, right? There will be times where I will just be like, I'm going to my room right now, guys. I'll be back in a little bit. And they don't question it, right? Like, I'm like, I need space. Like, this is a... Well, I think that's also really important, right? If somebody is saying, I need space, leave me alone. I need space, go away from me. And let me, let me leave the room. I need space. Like, if someone keeps using words like this, and it's trying to remain self the situation is your job as a partner to let them. Yeah. Um, they do mention some logistics that, that uh, revolve around children. 
uh, but also space. That's it. Children and space. Those are the logistical things that they, they bring up here. And then they start to talk about practicing this timeout for timeout's sake. Right. Yeah. They talk about how maybe a good way to do this is in a smaller conflict, just, you know, just to practice mid, you know, they refer to it as sort of a small argument or something not as heated to just call a timeout for the sake of practicing that. So that becomes part of a normal, a, a normal part of an argument is the ability to take a timeout so that hopefully when you get into a more heated, more intense argument, fight, whatever word we're going to use you feel more comfortable and more ready to do that. When you're feeling your most familiar, uncomfortable emotions flaring up and you recognize you're being triggered, perhaps at the level of irritation or frustration, perhaps rage or grief, call a timeout. Strong emotions often appear very fast and can be hard to predict. So as soon as you remember the option, when you start being flooded with feelings, call a timeout. So it's something you do early on. It's like the escape hatch. And I like that they use the word here, wrench. They say wrench yourselves out of the conversation and go to your agreed upon places. And I like that because that's really what it feels like for me to let, to like leave a conversation or an argument or whatever. It does feel very like physically being, having to yank myself away. And for me, it's usually irritation that happens first. That's like, if I'm beginning to get irritated, I, I wrench myself away. Um, and well, then they suggest that then step one, you take a few deep breaths and then begin to occupy your mind with one of the things that you think will help you. Some people suggest writing, drawing, journaling, that kind of thing. And then after about 15 minutes, check in with yourself. And then when you're ready, you come back together. So this is the way that a, hopefully like a, a good, clean fight will happen. Right? Our emotions are going, 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 time out, deep breaths. Let me go and occupy myself while they do the same. Maybe go for a walk or whatever, play solitaire. I don't know. Don't make them do yoga. It's a great one. Um, don't do anything that's going to like keep the adrenaline high. It's all about calming yourself down. Then um, check in with yourself. Do you feel better? They recommend after again 15 minutes and then come back together and do something together, which I'm going to come back to in a minute. But I think there's something else to say here, which is this is about how you, one person, handled yourself. And if you are not the person that's super upset and angry about this and you're actually having no, none of these emotions, just let your partner do it. Anyway, this free of blame. This is just recapturing ourselves. What do you think about that kind of step-by-step -step that they gave? I think it's a very good step-by-step. -step. I think that's a good way. I think it's very hard to do in practice or that it takes practice to get good at doing that for different people. Yeah, this is definitely something to practice. And I wanted to actually add something in here that I do and that I've heard in a lot of the other podcasts that are about conflicts. And again, I will link um, some really good ones by multi-emory because they have covered conflicts quite a lot. Um, but they don't mention it here, but I think if they were going to do a fourth edition, they would. It's called halt. So essentially what you're doing is you're halting yourself. And that means are you hungry, angry, lonely, or tired? Halt. Um, and I usually am angry because I'm hungry. <laughs> That's like the ones that are really closely linked for me. But some people also like they feel really tired when they when they're um 
when they're angry or they feel really lonely when they're tired or like these four emotions, they're, they're they come from a physical place and they're easy to soothe. So if that's even a part of the reason why you're angry, it makes sense to go, make sure you've, you've drunk, make sure you've eaten, make sure that you are not feeling alone, make sure that you have slept. And then it's like a good check-in. For my, that's, that's what I do. I check in with myself. Basically, like, Claire, have you eaten? Is this why you're being a bitch? Yes. He's nodding. Rude. Let's move on to the next section now. Okay. iMessages. Now, when you first read this, did you think about, like, iPhones? Because I did. Very briefly. I was like, why are we talking about iPhones? This is, like, pre-iPhones. And then they started to want good communication. I was like, I see what you've done there. See what you've done there. But they're not talking about that they're talking about ways of um, expressing your feelings. Do you want to give me some of your iMessages, an example of iMessages? Um, I mean, it could be something as simple as, I feel sad. Perfect. I mean, that's very basic, but w- what they're talking about here is that if you are, to communicate your feelings and to communicate about conflict well, Talk about yourself. How are you feeling? What is going on in you in this conflict? And not, again, not to blame someone else, right? There's a really big difference between the sentence, you are making me feel so bad and I feel so bad. Yeah. Which is the example that they give here. Um, And an I message is just a pure statement of how you're feeling versus accusing someone and and putting the fault on them for you feeling a certain way. This is a very powerful, very simple way of changing your communication. I would actually say it is the most simple, powerful way that I've come across in my research for drastically changing the way that you communicate with your partner. They do say some of the things that are kind of sneaky, sneaky. Um, what am I thinking? They're sort of like... Or like loopholes. Hijacking. Hijacking that I feel. Yeah. So saying I feel that expresses a belief beyond a feeling. So I feel that we should not be enjoying so much sex. There is like a belief behind that feeling. And that's not what you want to be. You're you're coverting it into the you message, right? I feel that you are crazy. I feel judged. Because you do this, and I don't, or something like that. This is all, you You are the reason that I'm feeling this, and that's not the point of an iMessage. The point of the iMessage is just to clearly and simply communicate how you feel to the person who's asking, how do you feel? Definitely. And this, you know, the next thing they say right after that is you can't, you can't expect someone to be attacked or judged or to sling accusations at them and then just to, for somebody to sit there and take it. That's neither healthy nor productive. That's so if you start to use a lot of those you messages and that those accusations and stuff, that's going to lead the other person to start defending themselves to, to fighting back. And none of that is a positive outcome, right? This comes back to our, you know, previous point about win-win situations of, you know, wanting to have a positive outcome for all. If you're starting to make it competitive, then everybody's going to push back and forth and that doesn't go well. 
I mean, I think then basically what would happen is you would be back into that heated, like, argument, and you would have to call a halt again, like call your time out, go apart again, spend all that time, come back and be like, right, okay, so I still feel sad, but now I'm trying to tell you I feel sad. Not trying to say, like, you always do this, you you make me feel this way, like, yeah. I want to add actually some other, they don't have it in here, I think, anywhere, but... There are there are there is another really simple, clear way to improve your communication, which is you never use the words always and you never use the word promise and you never use the word never. Like just avoid these these big generalizing words. Take them out of the vocabulary in this moment. So you're no longer going to be telling someone. I always have to do the dishes because you're always late, late home from work because you never prioritize me. Take out all of the the use in that sentence and all the always, never, whatever. Just say, I feel frustrated. That's that's the purest emotional like thing that you can say in that. I feel frustrated. And they open book, okay. What has triggered this frustration? Then you have an uh, then you have a dialogue going instead of you creating the whole of the dialogue. You instead of you projecting that onto your partner and being like, "I feel frustrated because of something you did, and this is the reason that you did it, and this is the reason behind the reason you did it." Once you start in like using those words, it's similar to the iMessages. Cutting them out is super super quick. It doesn't require you to like you know, have a therapist in the room. Like, it's just really easy to just cut them out. And I promise the conversations you have are transformed. Well, I guess that leads us on to the next section, right? Because the next section is about health being available. Um, so, yeah, there are many wonderful books, classes, and workshops and other resources available to try and learn better communication skills. Um, and there's also conflict resolution skills um, and a large amount of literature about um, you know, patient communication through conflicts. Um, they suggest weekend workshops that focus on communications for couples, churches who offer marriage retreats, medical centers that offer classes for anger management or couples in communication. Um, they also suggest... They have a long list of um, resources in the back too and several books that talk about this that they recommend. They also suggest one of the more expensive options is couples counseling, which we've already spoken about, encouraging you obviously to screen your resources to make sure that it's accepting of an open relationship. But this is all very white American polyamory for me. I think it's kind of tapping into something that kind of, that it doesn't this critique doesn't fit into any part of this chapter as well, because I think it's more about the entire chapter. But like conflict is not just learned from your childhood. It's also learned from whatever culture you're in. Even just like as agreeing what a conflict is is difficult when you start doing it across the cultural divide. So I guess what I'm saying is the help available is that they're listing here is like, you know, pretty predictable. Like it's all church fairs and like like workshops and retreats. But like that's not the sum total of it. And once we start to expand our understanding of the ways in which conflicts can be very diverse, as diverse as your partners can be. We need to start thinking. Actually, are we are we including all of the different 
um, resources that, that are needed. And I think they just fall short in this section. Yeah. I mean, it's a very, I mean, I, I don't think this really adds anything to the chapter. I mean, there's, there's some perfectly good resources here. I think for a lot of people, there's some really helpful resources here, but it doesn't really, there's nothing mind blowing, like go to a workshop or, or read a book or talk to a counselor is sort of, right. And it's definitely limits itself to certain people, certain parts of the population, certain areas. Um, I think what I, the one bit that I did like is when they said that sometimes just knowing other people struggle with the same issues can be helpful. Um, which is why I think that podcasts are the greatest resources available because they are free and open to anyone who has ears. Okay, next section. Time is your friend. I like this. Um, they started this with a sentence. In some cultures, it is customary to wait several minutes after a person speaks before responding. Yeah, I circled that and I was like, which cultures? Well, yeah, I don't know who they're talking to specifically. This is like... Hmm. Some places it's like customary, and like I might, I I did a lot of research to try and figure out where this was. Yeah. But. So I don't I don't know where that came from, but I like the thought behind it. <laughs> I like the idea, or when you I like the idea of instead of as people are often inclined to responding immediately, like you have to respond right away, um, taking a minute to process, think about, and then respond. Yeah, but. Okay, I take issue with you trying to like with the authors trying to couch that in some sort of like otherworldly, like enlightened savage narrative, which seems to be like the kind that's what this sentence stinks of for me. It's like if you're going to start bringing culture into this, I want a fucking section about culture and the way to like navigate this interculturally. I want more than just some cultures. Like I want more than that. Tell me, tell me which cultures, damn it. Anyway, the point is don't be so quick to respond. Uh, you might want to wait, take that time between responding to what someone has said. And usually, in fact, I would say always, a resolution of a major disagreement is going to take longer than a couple of minutes. And you might even have to come back to it a couple of times. So they consider this strategy. Acknowledge the disagreement. Give yourself a chance to state the feelings. And then take two days to digest what you've learned. And then come back to your beloved and discuss it when you're calmer. What do you what do you think about that strategy? Two days. I mean, again, I don't think you can set a timeline. Like maybe two days is a good amount of time. Maybe it's not enough. Maybe it's too much. I think that sometimes it is good to take a step back from a conflict and have a chance to each think about it individually and come back to it. Um, yeah. And you might realize that after a little bit of space that either, you know, you just sort of, you're fine with it or you've come up with a new resolution or you're ready to talk about it again and resolve it. I, so, but I don't think two days specifically, I think, you know, if you need some conflicts do need more time, like some, some things just aren't going to get resolved in one sitting because either it's just too much or because time is a factor or for whatever other reason. And realizing that you can take a pause or a timeout or whatever and come back to it later is important and I think a good thing. I, I think what they're talking about here is a lot bigger than a timeout, right? Like they've given us strategies for how to deal with like inflamed emotions and how to like give ourselves a space to calm that down, then how to have that conversation. But it's not like I'm going to say a bunch of the ways that I feel and you're going to say a bunch of the ways that you feel. 
there has to be like a, a discussion of like how how do we workshop this past just like I feel this way and you feel this way that's that's what I think this part is about is like take the time to to have that but then go away and come back before you you redress it it doesn't actually give us any idea of what the redress would look like right so naturally I did some of my own research and I'm going to show you I'm going to tell you what I learned um so one of the one of the the acronyms that I've come across that I thought was really helpful for ways to ways to handle a bigger disagreement is shop. So first of all, you tell your story of the thing that caused the disagreement. And that can use as many I messages as you possibly can, but the idea is that you are just telling your narrative, your perception of the way that this happens. And then the other person does the same thing. So for example, you'd be like, we were talking about something that I don't think was that important. And then all of a sudden you like had to leave the room and you just flew off the handle. And I just was standing there like, what was happening? Standing there in the middle of the room, didn't know what was happening. You're up there having a bath. I feel like completely left out of the loop. I don't know what's going on. Uh, whereas the exact same situation would be like, I have been sitting at home waiting for you to come back to have a discussion that it matters to me. And then you're standing in the middle of the room. I feel cornered. I got triggered. I took a timeout. It's the same thing happened, but the two people on either sides of the perception have their own story about how that goes down. That's, that's the S. The H is then your history. So you are responsible then for conjuring up inside you a time when you felt something similar. So maybe for person A in that situation, it is like when people get angry at me for no reason, I stonewall, I completely shut down. I just look at them and be like, no, you're wrong. No, you're wrong. I don't want to talk about this. I'm not talking about this. Because when people come at me with anger, I remember this time when I, you know, I was, I was I don't know, with my, my mom or my dad or there was a lot of anger in the house. And if you responded in anger, it just made it worse. So that's how I dealt with, that's how I dealt with this. And maybe that's the reason why, you know, I acted this way. You're sharing a history. Maybe that's explaining a trigger, but maybe it's just like, hey, I have felt this before. Here's the time when I felt this before. So this person that you love, right, can hear that, that history. Then you take ownership. So once you've laid out your story and your history, you can then take ownership over what parts of that experience were about your perception, your history was about you. And in doing that, you can kind of distill out the, the blame. The blame is now gone. And what you should be left with, ideally, is the actual issue at hand, which is in this situation that I've been using, someone coming home late, and then not seeming interested in the discussion that the other person wanted to have. So then you can talk about the P, which is prevention. You can prevent this from happening again by making sure that, for example, like you're going to tell me when you come home and be like, just so you know, I don't have a lot of energy. I know you want to discuss this big thing, but next time I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that we, we set a time for it. I'm going to do this you know, differently, and you're going to do this part differently. And now that we've discussed my history, you can understand the way that I'm reacting and the way that you're acting. And so that's the shop. Does that make sense? Do I need to repeat any of that? Okay, I will say they do not put that in this. 
this is not something that that I actually can't remember where I got that. I'll put the link about where I got that from. But they don't put that in here. They just say like take time. I mean, it's not it's not super super helpful about taking us through the step by step of how to redress a disagreement. And I wish they had. I like that a lot. I don't really have anything to add on that. So let's move to the next section, which is called writing it out. Uh, which, as you pointed out previously, is something that I do. Uh, I find it very helpful. Um, I either write things out or sometimes I record voice memos to myself. But giving yourself a space to, especially with complicated feelings or things, giving yourself a space to work through them and think through them. And sometimes by writing it out and having to think, you know, how to write it out and what you want to say. Um, they talk here about like writing a thoughtful letter to your honey. <laughs> These are some interesting sort of terms in here, but right. So like um, write a letter to that person trying to express what you're thinking to help you organize your thoughts about it. Um, you don't, it's not to replace a conversation. Um, and it's not necessarily something you have to ever have to share with them but it can help you personally to prepare for that conversation to help get your thoughts organized. Um, and they do say that it's important that you send the letter if you're going to send it only after you've really had time to think about it um, and really decide that's what you want to do. Um, they point out the downside of this is like, you know, a written word. I'm sure we all know in the day of texting, like, it doesn't convey things the same way as a face-to-face -face conversation where you can see body language and facial expressions. Um, and that's both, you know, a benefit and a downside of writing something out. Um, and then once you've sent it, you've sent it. So, you know, be ready if you don't send it until you've had a chance to think about it or just use it as a tool to help you process, which is usually what I do in that I'll write a letter, I'll write something, I'll work through it, and then I'll use that to get myself ready to have a conversation about something. Okay, the final section in this chapter is owning what's yours. Very short half page, just saying, you know, what is it saying? It's a bit fluffy as an ending, this chapter. It is. They do love to leave us on a bit of fluff, though. I think that's like, they, they like that. Um, they hark back to starvation economies from episode eight. Um, and says, like, you deserve support, reassurance, and love. I think this is just, like, being distressed, being strung out, being, you know, really, like, having the emotional overload of what a conflict can be. It's also important to own the relationship in the positive sense as well. So you, if you need just, like, some comfort and reassurance, like, ask for it. Get it. Get it, girl. Get that abundant warmth and affection. But yeah, I couldn't really get anything else usable out of this section. What did you think about this as an ending to the chapter? Yeah, I don't. It is a little fluffy. There, there's a little quote in there. They say, uh, when you are willing to own your distress, it becomes possible for your lover to comfort you. This doesn't, I mean, the, the whole section is just sort of a nice way to end and to say, like, you know, if you're going to have conflict, like it also, embracing that conflict and dealing with it also helps build stronger relationships that you can rely on and that can be fluffy and loving and take care of you. And it's okay to ask for support. It's kind of linking this maybe to the first, the first sentence, like there's nothing more vulnerable than when you, when you're distressed. So. Yeah. And I think that's what, if we look at 
positive and healthy conflicts and embracing them. It is about, they, they link it all to shared, you know, to sharing vulnerability. And that if you can learn how to do that, then maybe it will help strengthen your relationships. And then instead of conflicts being this really negative aspect, they're just a opportunity for growth and caring and compassion. And that's not too bad then. You know what, having read this back with you, I, when I came into this, I was a bit like, oh, I wish it had more like structural help for how to do conflicts well. But actually reading this back with you, I think the point of this chapter is not to provide those. The point of this chapter is to just convince the reader that conflict can be a good thing. And I think it does that job relatively well. Yeah, I, that's how I read it. And I think I understand why you, yeah. you've made some points about it needing maybe more structural help, but that's such a broad topic. There are books just on that. And I think this... Yes. In fact, let me give you a recommendation <laughs> for one. There is Usual Words by Dr. Sarah Kay. Again, we'll put it in the notes. Um, and they also put further reading in this for that. So we'll put those in the show notes as well. You can find Polly Pages on Instagram at Polly Pages. And if you have any questions or comments for us, please feel free to send them to pollypages at gmail.com. Our awesome intro and outro music is by Mint Green, and you can follow them on Instagram and Linktree at Mint Green Music. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Books.